Hey, how's it going? This is Craig Cannon, and you're listening to Y Combinator's podcast. Today's episode is with Dr. Rosalind Watts. She's a clinical psychologist at the Psychedelic Research Group at Imperial College of London. And the Psychedelic Research Group focuses on two main areas. First, the action of psychedelic drugs in the brain, and second, their clinical utility. So in this episode, Rosalind and I talk about their study of how psilocybin, aka mushrooms, can affect depression. And if you want to learn more about their research, I will link it up in the description and on the blog. All right, here we go. How did this particular research research project get started? This particular research started after various other studies looking into the effects of psilocybin on the brain and LSD on the brain. And this was the work of Robin Carhart-Harris, who um, his interest came out of his own psychoanalytic studies and his also work as a neuroscientist. And he was very interested in how we can explore the unconscious mind because so much of our behavior is controlled by the unconscious mind. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's very difficult to study scientifically and psychoanalysis is very, it's almost seen as more of an art than a science. So he wanted to find ways in of looking at the brain, the unconscious mind. And he um, he started studying psychedelics with David Nutt. So David Nutt is a, he's a quite well-known professor in this country for his uh, activism in legalizing drugs. He was he worked for the government. Um, he was the drug czar. So he, <laughs> um, he informed them or advised them about the scientific harms of different drugs and how they should be scheduled or, you know, where they should be in the schedule of illegal drugs. And he was sacked very famously because he his scientific report stated that uh, MDMA was less dangerous than horse riding. <laughs> okay. So he was sacked for that. And he has gone on to be a real innovator in drugs policy and drugs research, just recognising that lots of the drugs that are illegal might hold potential for healing, yeah. whereas alcohol and cigarettes that are legal really don't. So right. it's time for a more free-thinking approach. So it was David and Robin together that started this research and it was very difficult for them because there's so much red tape around this because since it was made illegal in the early 70s it's been very hard to get a a license from the home office to do this research but once they once they'd gone through the 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 process yeah it became easier for them to then do another study and another study so they've really been on a roll they did some studies looking at the effects of psilocybin and lsd on the brain and then they realized that the the findings that they had indicated to them that it was time to start looking at psilocybin with the clinical population. And the key finding was that um, psilocybin seems to deactivate the part of your mind, your brain, that is responsible for ruminating, hmm. for, for negative thinking on a loop. Hmm. So they realised that for people with depression, this could be really, really powerful. So they this, the study... Um, that I have was involved in was a clinical study looking at 20 people with treatment-resistant depression. Mm-hmm. And it was the first study of its kind in the UK. And there have been some studies in the US looking at psilocybin with people with depression and anxiety secondary to a, a, a diagnosis of a terminal illness. Okay. So are these the studies that were happening in the 60s and 70s or are there more recent recent work? So in the 60s and 70s, there were... Well, in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, there were hundreds and thousands of studies. Yeah. And the findings were really very positive, and it would all look great. And then it was became illegal. Uh-huh. And then the research just dropped away. But then it started again in the early 2000s, I think maybe 2006, around that time. Um, maybe slightly earlier than that. And... Some of the people that had been involved in psychedelic research in the 60s started to say, oh, we really, you know, Mm. we really need these tools. They were really working. We need to get them back again. And I think, um, so Bill Richards, who's a psychologist, had been working in one of the clinics in the US. So the Mm. Maryland Psychiatric Center had this this clinic there. There are some good YouTube videos showing people having LSD sessions that you can see the kind of psychiatrist sitting there with a a woman who is... um, on, on her LSD mm-hmm, trip. Mm-hmm. And they, yeah, they basically realised that it was time to go again. So 
they they kind of galvanized their team, got a new group together and started started up again. And this was just like these drugs had existed at the university and they just had a, a store of them or they lobbied to, to make this happen? How did it go? So how did they actually get the substance? Yeah. So I think that there are, there are various companies now that are, made, that are synthesizing, synthesizing psilocybin. Yeah. And they can provide it to researchers with a license to use these Schedule 1 okay. drugs. So, but in order to use them in a study you usually need it to be GMP grade, which means it's kind of very pure and able to be used. It's gone through lots of testing. Yeah. So there are very few providers of GMP psilocybin. So it takes a lot of a lot of the difficulty of doing this research isn't just the bureaucracy cutting through the red tape, getting the licenses, the lack of funding, mm-hmm. because the governments obviously don't often want to fund this, um, but it's also actually getting the psilocybin and getting enough of it and getting it that's stable and being tested. So. Yeah. And, and and so what clued you into the fact that it was working with depression and versus, you know, some other trait that it might affect? Well, I think it will be helpful for so many different mental health difficulties. But with depression, it's this the, the ruminating quality of depression, the, the, the fixation on certain ideas and concerns. So psilocybin and psychedelics seem to be very good at when when people are stuck in a very fixed pattern of Mm. thinking or of living psychedelics can break that pattern they can provide this state of when you look at the the images of brain communication pathways they go from this kind of Mm. kind of segmented lines to this full-on explosion where things that parts of the brain that don't talk to each other all talk to each other and suddenly there's this um, flexibility. So I'm, I'm curious about what the experience is for the following days, yeah. but I think before we jump in, we yeah. should talk about like what one yes. of these sessions actually yeah. looks like. Yes. In the last study, there was a low dose and a high dose session. The low dose session was 10 milligrams and the high dose was 25 and they look pretty different, these sessions. Hmm. So a low dose session. So firstly, the setting is that people would come into the clinic and they will have had some sessions with their guides beforehand so everybody has two guides their clinic clinicians therapists and they get to know the participant quite well you have some sessions where you just share about their lives and hear their story and you tell them a bit about yourself and it's quite a nice human equal mm-hmm. relationship mm-hmm. very respectful and quite different to some doctor patient kind of have you done both, like both type of relationships? Yes. Okay. Yes. All right. Yeah. Very different. Yeah. So I suppose it, I was working in the NHS as a therapist with lots of patients and there you're so busy. You have, you know, seven people coming every day and there is this huge, um, there's this huge need and that often you don't really have the tools to help people because often talking therapy doesn't really work, especially if you can only offer people six sessions. Hmm. So you, you, you're aware that people have this need and that they're, they're, so, they're so desperate and in crisis and there's not much you can do. So in a way, what that happens is you put your barriers down, you put your boundaries down. It's like, this is what I can do, this is what I can't do. And you, you, keep, yourself, you keep yourself a bit separate. And, and what happens to those people? They have to go private somewhere? Well, I, I guess these are usually people that really wouldn't have the money to go privately. So they just... They come for their sessions and you give them what you can, but you can only give them six sessions. So there's this sense of um, of it not being enough. Yeah. And it's hard for them and it's hard for you and it's hard for everybody there. And then they will often get antidepressants because that's something that the doctor can easily prescribe and it feels like it's doing something. But then often that doesn't work either. Okay. Um, and are antidepressants prescribed at the same rate that they are in the US here in the UK? They're prescribed incredibly frequently. Okay. So I think last year was our record number of antidepressant prescriptions there was 64.7 million prescriptions in the uk for antidepressants last year how many people live in the uk oh, i don't know <laughs> but it's i mean it's it's a lot more people than you would imagine yeah. though, is it yes yeah. it's, it's huge huge use of antidepressants that isn't really talked about very much and um you know as a short-term thing to get people through a crisis time i think sometimes it can be really helpful and for some people it works but for a lot of people it's a short-term fix that doesn't really change the causes of the depression okay doesn't really there's there's a root cause something's not right and it's not it's not addressing that okay so in in these like 
psilocybin sessions, yeah, you you more you're just like having a conversation, like you would between friends before you get going. Yeah. So someone get, gets comfortable with you. So you 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 feel really comfortable. So yeah, yeah. you are you are you're more you're going through something together okay. you're on a journey together yeah. you know and you've been through all the different things that can happen and how to manage a session and oh so it's sort of like a Q&A as well yeah. and so I show up and I'm like okay like here we go and yeah we have a, you. so yeah. so you we'd have a couple of sessions beforehand to get to know each other okay and then you would tell me about your life story and the difficult things that had happened and the things that you were scared would come up because they often do. So all the things you don't <laughs> want to talk about might well come up. So okay. all the taboos, you talk about sex and death and, you know, all the things that pe- people hide in their yeah. closets. And then when that's all been openly talked about, then you're ready to go. And they come into the, the clinic, they have the capsules on the low session, it's just two capsules and then they sit there with their two guides in a room that's full of nice decoration. So it's in a hospital, but it doesn't look like a hospital room. Okay. And they have a playlist of really beautiful music that's been specially designed for this experience. And then they sit there through the day. And on a 10 milligram dose, you would see tend to see more psychodynamic stuff. So internal exploration, people feeling more emotional, feeling that they maybe get some insight into different parts of their life. And often there's struggle hmm. because the, the, the amount of psilocybin is their Their ego is still intact. There okay. is still a, there is still an I there. There is still a, you would still be there knowing who you are, but just more in touch with the stuff that's going on down below hmm. that you don't often think about. So mm-hmm. the, the stuff that's been pushed away. So in other words, you can, you can kind of put a finger on it and you, you can identify it, but you don't, you don't let go of it? Or how would you put it? So the difference between a 10 milligram dose and a 25 milligram dose usually is that a 25 milligram dose is so high yeah. that it will completely, that you can't resist it. So with a 10 milligram dose, so, okay, imagine it a bit like this. With 10 milligrams, imagine you've got this um, cellar. Mm-hmm. Do you use the word cellar in the US? Yeah, basement. Yeah, basement. Or, yeah. You've got a basement. <laughs> and in the basement... There are all the skeletons and the monsters and the things that you have pushed away. And what psilocybin does is it can open the door of that stuff so that you can process it, so mm. that you can go through those things and be freer of them as you go forward in your life. And it's not just the monsters that are down there. There's also loads of other really amazing things, but but there's it's intense. And it can feel a bit like taking the psilocybin is a bit like kind of opening that door. Mm-hmm. And you have to let go and surrender to whatever is coming up. You have to be there and welcome it. With 10 milligrams, it opens it a little bit. And so the things come out and you might be having a conversation with a dead parent or you might be thinking about a relationship that ended. And it's like a very intense turbocharged therapy session. But you can fight it. You can kind of put the lid down. You can decide (laughs) you don't want to do it. With 25 milligrams, you can't fight it. You can't say, I don't want to deal with this. I've decided I don't want to. It's open everything comes out and you just have to surrender and just trust in the process. And your role as a psychologist, what, what are you doing throughout you know, in a 10 and a 25 milligram session? Helping people surrender, helping people face the things that are difficult, helping people sit through the pain of it um, by being encouraging that that's the right thing to do, that they're safe. Mm-hmm. People sometimes feel that they're dying because when the ego is deactivated, that's quite common because when your ego is deactivated, you have no sense of self. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that's a beautiful experience. I mean, what I, when I talk about the, you know, the, the basement being opened, it sounds like it's always really difficult. It's often a really beautiful experience for people. Or often there'll be a bit of both. Yeah. But, but when, when you die on a psychedelic experience, when you, when you have an ego death, that can either feel like, oh, I'm at one with the planet. I am the plants <laughs> and the trees. I am everything. Or it can feel like I'm physically being killed. I'm dying. Really? So you experience physical pain? Yeah. Okay. Sometimes. And you're just saying to them you're okay, like you're. You're. This is exactly what you came here to do. You know, this is all. This is. It's counterintuitive. Yeah. You know, if you feel that like you're going mad, great, go mad. If you feel like you're dying, go die. If you're exploding, let's see what it's like to explode. It's. It's about. In a way, the whole concept of mindfulness and, and meditation is about allowing things in and just sitting with them, rather mm-hmm. than distracting or pushing them away or trying to always be kind of achieving or feeling good but never feeling your feelings Mm, mm -hmm. and it's about that it's about it's like turbocharged mindfulness it's whatever is here let it be here don't fight it don't push it away 
don't try and nullify these negative emotions do sadness do suffering yeah. fully <laughs> and is there like is there a certain vocabulary that you train someone in before they get going i i just wonder if like if someone is more precise with their language, does that affect the experience or mm. is it kind of open to anyone? Interesting. Well, often the experience has had this noetic quality, which means that they're beyond words. You can't put them into words. So I think really people's yeah. kind of, voca- it doesn't really matter. Doesn't really if you matter. go beyond that, you go to a different level beyond that often. Mm. Um, but we do talk to them a little bit. We don't prepare them for any kind of experience because we don't want to prime them in any way. So we just say... You might have, if you feel that you're dying, that that's okay. It's, you're not actually physically dying. We'll look after you. It's all fine. Yeah. Um, but we don't really prepare them because we just don't know where they're going to go. So we just, the, the, the main preparation is just surrender. That's the one word, surrender. It's, and both, are both other people in the room psychologists or they, they serve different roles? So there's, in our next study that's just about to start, we're going to have one lead guide okay. and then one assistant guide. It's a kind of training program, gotcha. a way of people that can get experience. And then there'll also be the psychiatrist that's not in the room most of the time, but is on site if we need him. And then, yeah, so. Okay. And so are you taking notes or are you just hanging out? What do you do? Um, last time we would take a book in with us sometimes because there's a lot of time when they've just got the, eye, the earphones in, the eye shades on, and they're just lying back on the bed. And so it's just silence for a long time. Yeah. But this time I've, I think we're going to try not to do that because actually – it's just good to be there fully with them, even though it's it's a long day. It's like six hours that they might be on this yeah, experience. But just really just just being with them mm. and, and seeing the subtle changes and listening to the music and being in the moment, you know. That's so great. And so the, the people that have participated in the study so far, do they have any shared qualities or traits? Like what? how does someone end up in this study? Well, so in the last study, people had treatment-resistant depression, so it meant that they tried at least two different types of treatments that hadn't worked. Yeah. So I would say when I think back at those 20 people, they weren't all psychedelic enthusiasts. A couple of them had tried it before, but like 20 years ago. And actually, the one that had tried it before had had a terrible LSD experience. So he was really put off by it. Yeah. So the the, um, expectations about psychedelics were quite negative in many ways. Um, or there was a lot of anxiety around them. But I mm. guess also that maybe people had access to some media coverage of the positive <laughs> possibilities of psilocybin, so it was a bit mixed. There was some expectation that it might help them, but they were scared about how they were going to get to that good outcome. Right, well, because they've all opted in. To the yes. Yeah, they they've all opted in. Well, the reason they opted in, and I think this is all of them, is because they were absolutely desperate for something that was going to help them. They had tried everything. They'd had depression for an average of 18 years, and they tried between... I think three and 11 types of antidepressants. Imagine trying 11 types of antidepressants. And every time you go and your doctor gives you a different packet and they have mm. side effects and they take weeks to work mm. and they don't, and then they don't help you 11 types. So, and they'd also had like lots and lots of talking therapy up yeah. to six different courses of talking therapy. So these are people that they would try anything for some of them. It was like ECT was the next option, which is the oh, okay. electric shock therapy of the brain. So, uh-huh. People were like, well, I'll try this. And then if this doesn't work, I'll try ECT because it's either this or I can't carry on living like this. It's either this or I'm out. And is ECT proven to be effective? Well, in some very severe cases, there's some, it might help some people. There's also cognitive problems as a result of it. It can lead to severe cognitive difficulties and memory loss. And it's, I mean, I think sometimes it works for people, but it's really the last resort. And and so are these... Before you start taking psilocybin, say you're taking these antidepressants, they're super common, way too common in the yeah. U.S. Um, yeah. Are there long-term effects of taking these medications? Because I know so many people are, are also manipulating their brain who don't necessarily have depression. Mm. Um, you know, they're they're taking nootropics, they're taking yeah. these focused drugs or, or whatever it might be. Mm. Ha- have you found there to be any long-term effects? Of psil- with psilocybin? Not psilocybin. Oh, with, the, oh these yeah, yeah. Other, yeah. Um, <sighs> The research into the effect of antidepressant drugs often is very short term. It looks at them for a very short period of time without much follow up. Yeah. So, um, because that serves the purposes of the people making these drugs. So, I don't know of, of long term follow up research. All I know about is there was experiences of people that I've spoken to. So, in my clinical work as a clinical psychologist, seeing people saying they just, you know, they, they make me feel 
worse. Often people would say they made them feel worse. Mm. And the, the, often in terms of the long term, I think with antidepressants, if they work well for people, yeah. then they keep taking them. If they don't work, then they, they stop taking them. So we would be interested in the long term effects of antidepressants for people for whom they are effective. But I suppose for those people for whom they are effective, they're a complete lifeline. Right. So, um, yeah, I don't know about the research on that. Well, okay. yeah, I don't yeah. understand it to the same degree as you do. But is it is it common for someone if they do find uh, an antidepressant to be effective? Yeah. To maintain use forever. It is quite common for people to use it for a long time. Yeah. So, so for example, one of our participants had been on antidepressants, even though they hadn't really helped him. They helped him a little bit. So the way he described it was like life was really unbearable and yeah. the antidepressants took off the peaks and the troughs. So yeah. the highs of the highs, the lows of the lows. So it just made the range a bit more bearable. So even though he still felt very, very depressed, they kind of kept him going. He wouldn't say they worked, but he took them anyway because we need, and the real reason, and this is the real thing that I don't think gets talked about enough. The real reason I think so often people stay on the antidepressants is because when they try and go off them, it's awful. So there was this one participant who'd been on antidepressants, even though they hadn't worked for 20 yeah. years. And in our study, people have to come off their antidepressants in order to participate. Okay. Because it really, um, psilocybin is not nearly as uh, effective if oh, you're on antidepressants. Okay. It really takes the... Um, I mean, it takes the highs and the lows. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. It, it stops it from working, essentially. Yeah. Coming off his antidepressants before the study, he was in... He was tearful the whole time people describe electric shocks going off in their brain um bedwetting sometimes that was something how else. long are they off these before they they take psilocybin well for some people you have to withdraw them for quite a while yeah, because yeah. they're so you know you can't go into a psilocybin session when someone's so turbulent so that was a shock for us one of the big shock findings was oh my goodness me withdrawing from antidepressants for these people was absolute hell often and so i think that's why some people stay on them because coming off is too difficult yeah but then a lot of people, so we can talk about obviously the effects of the psilocybin, but it seemed to, for most people, last for about two or three months and then the depression started to come back. Hmm. And I think that's because, for lots of reasons, but partly because we didn't, this isn't psychedelic therapy, so we're not giving people um, integration really. We're not giving people the full package. What is integration? So yeah. a psychedelic intervention yeah. has to have three sec sections preparation the session itself and integration okay. preparation is as we've talked about getting yeah. used to how it's going to be getting to know each other the trust building the trust the session itself is about surrender being there together and then the integration is about the participant themselves weaving a narrative about what on earth they have just seen and gone through they may have had mystical spiritual experiences they may have had experiences of dying of amazing insights into their life it's a weird and wonderful world okay and they need to piece it together in a way that makes sense to them so that when they in the months and years that follow they know what that experience means and it helps them live their life because there's no use in having this incredible opening if you then go back to your same old life right so what psychedelics do is they give you this window of opportunity so um okay so like if you imagine like so this is one of my colleagues analogy i'm, I'm stealing it from him <laughs> If you imagine like a snowy mountain and then and you go sledging and you go sledging down the same track and you always go. So when there's a, a track in the snow, it gets deeper and deeper and deeper. Mm -hmm. Anytime you go down that mountain, you're going into the same track because it's just the groove is getting deeper and deeper. If you imagine that as your mind in depression, yeah. you go through the same thoughts, ruminating about the same things, worthlessness, whatever it is, whatever your ruminations are just sticking in, in that rigid pattern people describe it as like a mental prison they're stuck in the same old patterns and then with psilocybin or psychedelics it's like you've got this this mountain with this like deep deep ridges that you yeah. always get at and then with psilocybin it's like a snowplow that just comes across and wipes everything through so in this state of brain connectedness or the entropic brain or the integrated brain however you want to talk about it it's this it kind of wipes it clean not that it doesn't like wipe your brain clean in the sense that it takes everything out of it but it just provides this opportunity of flexibility and then you can kind of sledge anywhere you want to go so after a psychedelic experience people have this window of feeling really mm -hmm. often really fantastic for for a number of weeks or even months and this flexibility i can i can try this i can try this try new things and so if in that window of opportunity they start new habits they change their relationships they 
make those life changes, then we think that it can really last long, the effect can last longer. But if you just give someone a psychedelic and you don't encourage them to make the most of the window of opportunity, then what we found with our participants is that the depression came back after three months or so. Mm. I mean, it makes sense, right? Your your life is already structured in such a way. It's not like your memory yeah. is wiped clean. So yes. you kind of fall into your habits yes. as you would. Absolutely. Interesting. Yeah. Okay, so let, let's go into the actual effects, yeah. right? So what, what are, I mean, let's be specific, right? Mm-hmm. So without sharing anyone's yeah. name, like yeah. what have some things, like, yeah. what's happened? What's happened? So of our 20, um, well, the first thing to say is that they all said that they would prefer it to any other treatment they tried. Three of them didn't have a, a, a real effect from it, hmm. but they still, even though it hadn't really worked for them, they still felt that the whole something about the process was very different to normal, you know, it's different from getting a pack of pills. It's you're yeah. sitting there, you're talking yeah. to people, you're getting to know them, they're listening to your life story. It's very human. And, and all of these people had had therapy before? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So it was they even different from to, that. They, yeah. It's different to talking therapy, yeah. yeah. This this difference in the relationship, it's not the, the, the therapist sitting there and kind of trying to help but not really having time to help. It's like there's something different about the way you, you go into it together. It's the, there's a there's a bond. You mm. develop a bond. Even if it wasn't effective for them, there's something powerful about that therapeutic bond because it's quite different to how we how we do things in this in our culture. It's, yeah, there's a, well, there's a different I've, philosophy. Yeah. I mean, I, I've heard it frequently mentioned in the context of couples, like yeah. having these like experiences where they, you know, they take mushrooms or, yeah. or whatever it might be. And um, for whatever reason, they can like work through something yes. or like people who work together, take yeah. it together or yeah. all these things. And it's it's not the same thing as like, let's have a coffee and talk. Yes, exactly. Yeah. There's something and there's something about the bravery of you're going through this unknown thing together. Yeah. There's something inherently bonding about that. So so yeah, so for three people, it didn't work. They didn't have a psychedelic experience in that they didn't really see anything, even though they're on the high, the same dose as everyone else. And we've got some ideas about why that might be, uh, but we need more research to, to really work it out. So three of them, it didn't work. Then for six of them, at the six-month follow-up, they were still depression-free. Hmm. So for six of them, it really, really, it was, you know, life-changing, incredible. Yeah. Yeah, that's amazing wild. thing. And then we've we've stayed in touch with people now, so that we know that actually of those those six people, for most of them, the the depression did start to come back mm-hmm. at some point around the year point. But that some of them have had their own follow up treatments. Okay. So they have managed to keep themselves well through finding because if you've tried something that works and you want to try and find a way of accessing it again, so yeah. they found places in the world where you can legally have it again. Uh, okay. So, the, but they need someone with them at, for the second, third. Well. So let me tell you about the other 11. Yeah, and then sure. when I've done that, I'll go to those. So six of them, they were still well after six months. Three of them, it didn't work. And then for 11 of them, and this is, uh, yes, yeah, so the majority of them, they were really well for three months, depression-free or very mild symptoms of depression. But yeah. then after three months, the depression started to come back again. And didn't go quite back to how they had been before for most of them, but they the depression came back. So what's been really hard for us is to have these people so... 17 out of 20, and these are people that nothing has worked for for years and years and years. 17 out of 20 people come and they have these experiences and it's just a day. You know, it's not even that complicated. Mm -hmm. They take some capsules and they sit there for a day with you and they feel better for months and months and months. And they are, their partners say they have a a sparkle in their eye that they (laughs) haven't had for decades. They're starting new hobbies. They're playing with their children more. It's beautiful to see. And then the depression starts to come back. And then you have to say to them, I'm really sorry, but we can't give you another session. Because we're a research study with no funding. Our, you know, we all work for free all the time. We all, you know, cut corners in every way we can because we don't, there is no money here. Our team is, is we we based on the funding of one incredibly generous donor. Mm-hmm. And apart from that, we don't have funding really. So we're so financially constrained that we, the budget that we do have, we need to use on, forward bringing this research forward right so we have an obligation to people with depression everywhere to to get this treatment available to them so our next study we're going to be looking at um psilocybin versus antidepressants we're going to be comparing them and that's an important thing to do but we're spending all of our budget that we have on that study which means that we just cannot give sessions to the previous people because if we did we wouldn't be able to do the next study right so we have to say to them we, we said to them from the beginning we we can't give you follow-up doses we we, we have hmm. to keep forward in our research we can't so 
it's incredibly difficult and ethically hard to open people's eyes to something that works. One one person said it was like turning on the lights in a dark house and then it's like the lights fade again. But they, they still say that, you know, now they've tried something that worked, they have the hope that they can access it again. And some some of them have been able to access it again. Man, yeah, I mean, it it totally makes sense. It's like anything. It's like exercise, right? Yeah. You, if you If I were to go on a run every three months and that would be all I needed to stay in shape, that would yeah. be amazing. Yeah. So it's incredibly effective. Yeah. But it also makes sense that you have to keep at it. Yeah. And so are they... Are they swapping it out for, you know, like people talk about going on these like ayahuasca retreats and, you know, you list the other comparables. So the only legal way of of having this experience is there's there's a couple of places where mushrooms are legal legal and they're retreats, but they're very far away on the other side of the world. Mm -hmm. And there are places in Europe where you can have ayahuasca ceremonies. And then there's South America. So it's very difficult and you require it, you know, it's for people with yeah, money. You basically. Cash. Yeah. yeah. So a couple of our participants were able to access those, um, but the rest of them have not been able to. Okay. So it's... And are, is it common for them to get back onto the antidepressants or what are they trying to do? A lot of them have stayed off the antidepressants. Really? Yeah. But some of them have gone back on just because they say, oh, I just, you know, I need something to help me get through... You know, it's just life is just really tough because, you know, things happen and someone's farm got flooded and there's there's yeah. kind of life yeah. happens and people when they're suffering from depression, they just they need something. And that's the only thing that's available at the moment. So could, could you walk me through? Cause I haven't been to uh, therapy of any kind yeah. before me. I probably should. But like, walk me through like the how the conversation might flow, because I, I just kind of would like some context. Yeah. So. The conversation in the actual session yeah, itself. Yeah. Okay. So, on a high dose session, it would be quite. You would expect it's different every time, so you just really don't know. But it would be quite common, I guess, to have the participant is lying there, and I'm sitting there, and sometimes holding their hand if they're going through something painful. Sometimes not. So sometimes just sitting there, and for a lot of the time, it's silence. And in in their world, they're battling things crying and and what you see is very little that they're just lying there um so it's very internalized Mm. often but then sometimes they might say oh this you know i don't want to go there i'm I'm not i can't they're kind of struggling with something and so you're just helping them to kind of face whatever is there Mm -hmm. and then sometimes people are having a kind of rebirth experience so you're a bit more like a midwife than a therapist you know there's kind of noises and sounds and you're reassuring but you're not really in an intellectual conversation because getting into the mind is we we want to get out of the mind and into the heart and into the body so so as soon as you start oh what is that what does it look like what is it it should then you're you're back in the mind and yeah the brilliant thing about psychedelics is that they turn off that kind of ego Mm -hmm. frontal parts and you can go into the body and into the heart and so you've had to totally retrain yourself like that's completely against everything you studied i imagine completely and so are you asking different kinds of questions or is it is it just encouragement? Honestly, it's love. It's just love. <laughs> okay. It really is. It sound, that sounds really like yeah. like ridiculous, but it uh, when you boil it down, that's what it is. So yeah. it's presence. It's presence and it's love. And to me, they're kind of the same thing. And that when you're there in the same way as when you're... Well, I think actually my own like experience of having a baby and looking after a small child Hmm. which has happened alongside it so I was doing guiding in my maternity leave Hmm. so I had a like three-month-old baby at home and I was going you know and for the first time when I first started doing this work and now she's nearly three and so I think my parenting work or my mothering is actually probably something that helps me the most in understanding what the, the, the presence that is needed hmm. it doesn't mean that it can't be men as well men and women both you know can bring that kind of I guess it's a kind of like unconditional well the humanistic psychologists used to talk about unconditional positive regard which is a kind of a broad approach of just whatever you do I accept you and but it's kind of one step further because when you're seeing people going through this kind of pain you do feel a sense of like love in a different way just hum, human not like falling in love with patients it's like a human compassion and feeling of shared humanity together mm-hmm. and a feeling of you just so you're just so with them 
and it's like and they're vulnerable they're vulnerable so they're like they 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 you know there's there's just something special about that kind of therapeutic relationship it's very different yeah and so as someone who's been on the other side of their like traditional yeah. what what is your experience how does it contrast well so i did some research yeah. into this and i i interviewed people and I, from the study and i asked them to compare it to the previous yeah. therapy they'd had and it was it was in a way I th- it did really surprise me because I'd been doing like CBT, you know, this kind of like co- behavior, cognitive behavioral ther- therapy for years, and as, as my as, that was my practice, and and I thought it had been kind of helpful-ish. I mean, I always <laughs> knew that it wasn't really that helpful, and people weren't always getting better, but it was kind of helpful. But what people in our study said was that once they'd had the psilocybin, they'd experienced what it was like to have something that was kind of a different kind of relationship. They looked back on the talking therapy they'd had mm. and just felt that it was quite, and I think they'd had bad experiences. It's not always like this. I know, I mean, I have colleagues that are brilliant therapists and I know that their part of, their, their clients wouldn't feel this way, but sometimes it can be really directive. Mm-hmm. So it's like, I've studied all this. I know what the theory is. I know what the model is. This links to this links to this. And we have all these diagrams that we learn when you're training to be a clinical psychologist of like, <laughs> eating disorder ocd depression and you have all these arrows it's yeah. like this happens here 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 so you've got like the like the kind of you know you've got the system in your head yeah it's like you are infj yeah, this is what exactly, you do exactly <laughs> and i've got to get you to here and there's quite a lot of pressure on you to get them there yeah. um and you you do this thing called socratic questioning which is this technique um where you kind of know what the answer is but you need to make the person feel that they're getting to the answer. So it's, oh, but I wonder what what would happen. It, but it's directive because you're trying to get them somewhere. Mm-hmm. You think you know the answer and you're the therapist right? and you're the one that trained and you're the expert and they're coming to see you. And with psilocybin, it's completely different because the expert is themselves. They are the expert because what's happening, the, the, the healing power of this is something in the unconscious mind, their own unconscious mind, is writing itself. There's a homeostatic principle at play here, I'm sure of it, so that whatever things... If you think of your body as a system, your body and mind as a system, whatever things need dealing with, whatever problems there are in the system, forget our manual of A, B, C, D, whatever is actually going on in this holistic system, the psilocybin helps just kind of goes there somehow. So the unconscious mind is incredibly intelligent and knows where which parts of the system are a bit weak or a mm. bit faulty and which mm-hmm. need changing. So it can fix the glitches in the system somehow. And this is this kind of brain connectivity. All the parts are talking to each other. So it's like almost this kind of scanning process of like, okay, we've got all the information. Where, where do we need to go to? So what that means in terms of the relationship is that there's complete respect for them because they are the ones that are going on their own journey. You can't go on it for them. Yeah. So it's not directive in any way. We have no idea where they're going to go. I have no... So say you were coming for a session, I would have no idea really about what would be the right thing. Whenever I tried to have ideas when I first started, they were always wrong because the person's own mind is infinitely more intelligent than I am. Right. Well, I mean, they just know themselves. They know themselves. Exactly. (laughs) You're in a constant conversation yeah. with yourself. I, one thing I always wondered about therapy, um, having known a, a bunch of people that have gone through it, is it that matchmaking process? Yeah. Because I've often, you know, met someone who's a therapist, and they're like, I don't know if like yeah. you're the right fit for me. Yeah. Is that? Do you find that to be a real thing, or is that just like my own resistance to like not wanting to do it? It's a very important point, for, absolutely for, for talking therapy, especially if it's long, kind of longer term talking therapy, when you're in, going weekly for someone for maybe a year or something or a couple of years, so key, that, that relationship. Yeah. All the work is done within that relationship. But with psychedelics, the work is really, really done on the inside. So I think the match is important in the sense that if there was a dislike there, mm-hmm. you know, we all meet people that sometimes for whatever reason, they activate something in us that makes us think about someone we don't like or... If there was a dislike and there wasn't trust, that would be a problem. Mm-hmm. So the the participant and the guide have to trust each other, really, really trust each other. But that you know that's usually it's usually okay as okay. long as as you kind of um, obviously not all therapists would be guides. It takes a particular kind yeah. of approach. Not needing to be the expert, not needing to talk about stuff in an intellectual way, being comfortable with emotions, being comfortable with not knowing, being comfortable with being a loving presence and patient. You know, it's not something that is going to suit all therapists, not everyone. 
And not all people would be kind of, would really trust the process enough to be able to go through it. Some people might be quite suspicious of it or just not really feel it was right for them. So it's not right for everybody. Okay. But for the people through our screening process, the people that we we had come through and and the therapist that we had, it, it was tended to be fine. Yeah. I can think of one person, I think, who wasn't fully trusting and um, of his guides before it went through. And actually, he had a good outcome, but I think he could have done with a few more sessions beforehand. Yep. But usually the trust is there. But beyond that trust, I don't think the coupling, the, the matching matters because in the session, so, okay, say, say I've got issues with my mother. Yeah. It might be that when I go and have talking therapy, I might want to go and see a woman maybe to work through those, that relationship. And I might want someone kind of my mum's age and it might, you know, maybe, maybe not. Sure. Those kind of factors don't really matter in psychedelics because you're going to be going through your month. If you've got an issue with your mother, you're going to maybe be going through that in your session, perhaps, if that's the area that the <laughs> scanning process decides is most relevant. But you're going to be doing it yourself. You might be face-to-face with your mother in the session. Yeah. But it's not the guides aren't there to take part in the psychodrama. They're, the work isn't done with them. They're just, they're just kind of nice people helping you be there. They're mm. not... They're not so much part of the healing. Okay. Yeah, it's a very different process. With talking therapy, I always... My concern was that I was just going to look for confirmation. Yes. And so I would look for someone that's so close that it just like wouldn't necessarily break Mm. through. Um, And that's the other thing. Great thing about psychedelics as well, actually, is that I think sometimes... And actually, I can own this from being an exhausted psychotherapist in the NHS, seeing lots of people. By the time the eighth person came through the door on a Friday... I was so exhausted. I might not remember their notes yeah. and I might sit there and what I would fall back on is just being nice, you know, being a nice, kind person. Like I, I hear you and I'm there for you. But when I talk about the love of a psychedelic session, yeah. it's like a tough love. I mean, it's the, um, it, there's no nice about it. As a guide, you're like, you're sometimes pushing them to, to face really difficult things. And the psilocybin experience itself is often extremely confronting. Yeah. So there's no like platitudes or confirmation of like, yeah, you're doing great. You keep going. <laughs> no. But but then like, I mean, you, you've seen it, right? There's there's kind of this this period where it works and then yeah. it stops working. Well, I mean, the long-term effects aren't yes. necessarily there. Yeah. How are you thinking about setting someone up for success? Like you have, a, you have another study coming out. What are you going to do to get someone on the right track? <sighs> there is, I mean... If someone gave me like a license to use psilocybin legally and loads of yeah. money, then I, I guarantee you I could set up something that would, um, well, we all, you know, loads of people working in this field. We all have ideas. I mean, we know we've, we've working on the work of the, the people that were doing this decades and decades ago. Sure. Um, and there are loads of different models that we think would be really useful to mix together, like various psychological models that actually lend themselves really well to this. And meditation is the key thing, like mixing meditation and this. So, in a perfect world, I think it would be seen as something that it's it's a journey. It's a long journey into the deepest, deepest parts of yourself. Mm-hmm. And from that place, you're hoping to find a self-acceptance, a self-knowing, a self-love that enable you to radically transform your relationships with yourself, with other people and the world around you. So that was the theme that came out of my research looking at the outcomes was that people felt more connected to themselves, to other people in the world around them. So we, I would look at things that help people... Um, continue that process so it would start off with um the, the prep phase it would go into the sessions and then the integration would be something that help people maintain their learning mm. and maintain a sense of community stay connected to other people and a sense of a sense of meaning in the world like it, we're not just doing it in a vacuum there's 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 a re- there's people have real insights about their values and about the way the world should be and the way the world is and they change their behavior in line with it so things to help people continue with that and it's not the therapist saying because that's the other thing i would do is in talking therapy before i would say we need to set some goals what things are important to you let's set these goals and the feedback i got from the participants in our study was that they didn't like when they had that kind of thing before they didn't like it because it was someone's kind of telling them what kind of goal to have and they would feel that they would fail at them and it Mm. would just make them feel worse and who knows what the right goal is but with this psychedelic experience, people can, they come up with this 
strangest, most unpredictable goals because actually what you thought was right for someone wasn't going to be right. Yeah. But they get this idea that what I really need to do is A, B and C. So it would be supporting people to maintain those insights and new goals. But the key thing as well, it wouldn't be like a kind of one session and then you're okay forever. It would be, I think, it would be the long journey would be one where people might have a psilocybin experience every six months. Mm -hmm. They might have a period where they had like four, six months apart and then they're okay for like 10 years and then they might come for a top up. But it would be very individually decided upon. Like you'd, you'd work yeah. out with someone if they needed another session or not. But it's, an, it's, an, it's a life journey, you know. It would be something that they would then, um, for, for deep self-reflection through different life stages. So maybe someone, you know, in their 30s, they would have three sessions and then feel feel pretty well in their 30s yeah. and 40s and then then the 60 they retire and things get really difficult <laughs> and they're having to recalibrate things and they come back for another psychedelic session and they go back inside and they Interesting. so i'd see yeah. it's an ongoing thing so that that like confidence to make a change is is change a more common thing with, with versus talking therapy rather than like is it is talking therapy more conducive to like this is kind of um not it's not the exact word but like coping mm. like this is like you have this certain situation you're gonna be able to deal with it in such a way versus uh psilocybin therapy where someone might be like mm. i can't do this anymore i'm gonna become a painter or, mm. or something like that is that yeah. a, a difference that's an interesting one i don't think it's quite so certain types of talking therapy are more like so cbt and things like that short-term therapies are more about coping coping strategies helping people kind of keep going yeah. in the situation they're in whereas things like psychoanalysis are more about deep internal change like understanding the unconscious mind and how it's infecting your behavior and making deep changes but it takes many many years yeah, to yeah. get to that so i'd say psychedelics are a bit more like um psychoanalysis and that it's learning to understand understanding yourself much much better in a, in a very deep way okay. and, and making changes and whereas with psychoanalysis it might be a bit more gradual that people might get to know each other much better over say 10 years of analysis and many many thousands and thousands of pounds yeah. spent on it they might start to understand themselves better and make those changes with psychedelics it can suddenly seem a bit more yeah you know revolutionary yeah but we do encourage people after a session not to make any big changes for a couple of weeks oh okay just to let it sit and percolate and yeah because people often say i want to change my job or i want to do this right and in our sample of 20 people people did make changes new jobs did things they'd been frightened of for a long time changed relationships people did make big life changes mm -hmm. but yeah we do encourage caution <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and and so for for the people who don't necessarily have access to you know traveling to South America yeah. or, or participating in your session, what do you advise them to do? I mean, you, you've mentioned meditation before. We talked about it before yeah. we even started recording. Yeah. Like that seems pretty important. Yeah. Um. Yeah. What do you tell them? You can access these states without psychedelic drugs. Psychedelic drugs are just one way of accessing these states. Um, breathwork, holotropic breathwork. Is, was developed by Stan Groff. So after psychedelics were made illegal, Stan Groff had been working in psilocybin and LSD research in the States, in the same place as Bill Richards, who yeah. I mentioned before, for um, for decades. And then when they became illegal, he developed with his wife this other technique to enable people to get to the same state. Yep. Um, so you can do holotropic breathwork workshops. Um, we're actually we're doing training for our new therapists um, this week. And on Saturday, we're all going to be doing holotropic breathwork workshop together because it's le a legal way of inducing yeah. these experiences meditation like deep deep meditation practice it might take a long time to get there but it, you can access very very similar states as well and also mm. um yeah in a way that it's it's easier a psychedelic experience can be really it's well it's hard to find and then it, even if you you do find it you access it it's even for the people in our study or at a ceremony it's intense and hard and draining Whereas meditation, you can start small and build up and you mm -hmm. can fit it in your day. And I've I've had a meditation experience that was fully expansive and I've only had one ever, may, may never have another <laughs> one, but it was enough to make me know that this is serious. You know, yeah. you, in the same way that psychedelics, they if they deactivate the default mode network, which is your kind of ego structure, your, you know, the, the brain basis of the ego, meditation does that too. It quietens down that mental control okay. the monkey mind yeah it's quieting the monkey mind that's all i would say really right. <laughs> you're doing with psychedelics and with meditation 
And then what about maintaining the change? Maintaining the desire to change? With, with, you mean with meditation or just generally? I mean, all, all of the above. I'm, I'm thinking of, from, yeah, from the perspective. Because, like, the reality is that like, most people listening or, yeah. or watching or whatever, like, probably won't go through this process. Yeah. But they, I think almost everyone knows that feeling yes. of, like, I, um, there's this book, The, the War of Art. Have you mm, ever read it before? No. It's by, by an author, Stephen Pressfield. Mm-hmm. And uh, he talks about resistance. Mm. And oftentimes the resistance to, like, push through to really go for your creative project or or whatever it might be um because so often people deep down kind of know the thing that they want to be working on but there's a fear or there's a pressure there a million reasons to to not do that thing yeah um so yeah i guess i'm just kind of curious if if you often recommend like a book or a certain thing to someone i think getting connected is the thing i think that's what um when you when you when you deactivate the kind of the thing that keeps you trapped yeah and you can get down to your real when you when you turn off the kind of the mind or the ego however you do that whether it's meditation or walking in nature or whatever you do you turn that off and you get down to your i would call it your soul but your space of who i really am that little voice inside you that knows what it really wants to do when you know what it is that your life is about or the the thing that's going to make you feel meaning and feel happy and feel that you have a purpose that then don't let go of that for anything but that the way to the way to make that happen is to is to get connected because it's very easy to you know we're trapped in our head and we're in our culture in the west we're very very disconnected from each other and from ourselves most of the time kind of whatever addictions we've got whether it's netflix or <laughs> you know beer or whatever we're just kind of like operating this frenzy kind of hamster wheel existence when you turn that all off and you get down into what you who you really are, you you need to honor that. So the theme, as I said before, about what psychedelics do is make you more connected to yourself, others, and world around you. That is the thing. That's that's kind of my motto anyway. Of like connection to myself. What's my connection to myself? How am I nourishing myself? How am I listening to that voice? How am I prioritizing that voice over the other chatter of the world? Connection to others. You, it's difficult to achieve anything on your own, but finding your tribe, finding the other people that you are going to do this with, mm-hmm. whatever your dream is, find other people that you're going to you're going to do it together, and then connecting to the world is really just, yeah, kind of thinking about what what it means and the ethical roots of what you're doing and the value systems and 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 helping it spread wider and wider. So. Connectivity. I mean, the interesting thing about mushrooms, in a, in a forest, mm-hmm. you've got all the different trees. And like, I think two thirds of the forest is underground. You can see one third of it, which is like the trees, but two thirds of it is underground. It's like the roots that go down. And the way trees communicate with each other is through mycelium. And mycelium is mushroom, it's fungus. Mm-hmm. So the whole of the forest communicates through this layer of mushroom. So I think mushroom is a great, it's a great connector. And... You can think about that analogy, really. If you imagine, like, um, you imagine yourself as a tree. Okay. And you've got your you've got your trunk, which is your connection to yourself, and if you've, you've got your branches, which is your um, you, your kind of your ideas going out, and then you've got your roots, and you've got this layer of mycelium, and you're connected to all these other people. And so, to make your tree grow really strong, it's about yeah, your your place in the forest. You're not standing alone. That's great. I think that's a great place to stop. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. All right. Thanks for listening. So as always, you can find the transcript and the video at blog.ycombinator.com. And if you have a second, it would be awesome to give us a rating and review wherever you find your podcast. See you next time.